Welcome to Community Hope Podcast. We pray that the Word of Christ would dwell in you richly as you listen and that you would be encouraged in Christ. Well, welcome everybody, a fresh and a new back from vacation. And uh, we're going to be talking through and reading about Joseph. I think Joseph is a man for our time. I, I, I think Joseph, uh, as we go through it, and maybe as you remember, you'll see that his life had so many different changes. And you'd think you're going one way, and they'd turn a corner. And I think that's how we feel. People say, Pastor Doug, what is it like doing ministry right now? And I use words like this, mushy. <laughs> you know, because in the past, you're like, well, you do this, and this is what happens. And now you're like, well, it does. It, and talking to teachers, right? Teachers, it feels mushy because there's a lot of unknown or, or weird, you know. And I think Joseph's life faced a lot of that, and there's a lot for us to learn and know in Joseph's life. Gretchen said to me the other day, we were talking, and, and she said, um, your body's falling apart. And I said, honey, I have been inflicted with strength. She looked at me with a strange look. I go, I am inflicted with strength. What do I mean by that? Well, the Bible says when you're weak, you're strong. So on vacation, this is my smile. My tooth broke. And guess what? When you vacation in Florida, your dentist will not fix your teeth quickly. You thank God for mass, right? You're like, thank you, Lord, that I have a mask on. And, and you know what it did? It helped me to remember my confidence isn't in my smile, but it's in what Jesus says about me. And that's stronger than any smile, isn't it? And uh, while going to Florida, um, years ago, I was doing respite care for a family, for a, a man-child, really. The, he was uh, pretty severely mentally handicapped. And, and I... Uh, had to put him in his wheelchair every day and just take care of him so his family could have their first vacation in years. And I remember I lifted him from the back side of the bed into the wheelchair. Now, you should always, like, get him closer. But, you know, I mean, I just graduated from college, and I can handle it. Oh, it did something to my back to this day. Every few years, I, my sciatica goes out, especially when you have planes that aren't so good and furniture that isn't yours, you know. And so my sciatica went out. But the good news is I wiped out on my bike on Sunday night coming back from my dad's house. I was coming down this hill and turning a corner, and I, I wanted to make it before this oncoming traffic, so I was pedaling fast. Well, when you turn a corner in your car, do you ever feel the force kind of pull your car? Same thing happens on a bicycle. And I could not control. I went right over the curb. Good thing there was a little tree there. So it broke my fall with my head hitting the tree. And uh, it had some bend to it. I had a headache till it was a Sunday night till, through Wednesday. <laughs> um, and my rib only hurts when I breathe and laugh. Um, but, you know, you don't feel the back pain when you have other pain. So look at the good in that. This is a picture of what happens to your phone. You know how your phone tracks you and it senses stuff? My phone said I went right into the houses there. If you see those little squares by when I fell off my bike, and you could see where the tree actually is there on the tree lawn. But thank God it could have been worse because there was a fire hydrant really close, and that would not have had any give. Um, <clears throat> 
And, and so I have been inflicted with strength. These are opportunities to go, you know, Lord, I, I didn't plan on this. These are, you know, difficulties. And yet uh, you say when I'm weak, I'm strong. You say that there's opportunities and things I don't see. There's a perspective in life that you do have. And you can just curse it all the time or you could say, Lord, you're inflicting me with strength and may I respond to you in this. Now, to understand more about Joseph, I think we got to get some family dynamics. All of us grew up in different homes. Some you have maybe broken homes. You know, some could have even been foster care. I mean, we, we come from all different families. But Joseph's family may be unlike many families. I could be wrong, but it, it seems to be unlike many families. Because what you have here is you have Joseph's dad, Jacob, and if you know anything about Jacob, Jacob ran from home because he deceived his brother out of his birthrights and went and lived with his father-in-law before he was ever his father-in-law. And he fell in love with this daughter of this man named Rachel. And basically the dad said, I'll tell you what the dowry is, because you had to pay a dowry, still goes on in cultures today, work for me for seven years. So it says the seven years were like a day. I mean, the guy was so in love. He couldn't wait to have Rachel. So he works for seven years, has the wedding. I assume there was lots of drinking and lots of veils over the bride because the dad did a switcheroo. And he put the older, not as attractive sister to be married. I, I don't know, alcohol, veils, I don't know what it is, darkness. But he ends up in the morning, in the light of the day, and is like, oh my goodness, I just married the sister, and he's mad, and he talks to the dad, and the dad's such a swindler. He's like, well, I'll tell you what. I had to marry her first. She's the oldest, you know, and so I gave her to you, but I'll give you Rachel too. You can have both daughters. That's a problem right there, and uh, you just have to work seven more years. Man, so he does. He works seven more years, and he gets Rachel. Now, child uh, raising children and bearing children was really your heritage. It was your inheritance. And, and so for a number of reasons, both the women, they had like maids, women who took care of them, cared for them, offered child care, served them. They were, they were slaves, basically. And in that day, you could give your slave to your husband and then create babies with the slave women too. And they'd all be yours and somehow you'd be one happy family. But I can't imagine it was a very happy family. Because, you know, you had like levels. Oh, I'm the daughter of a real wife. Oh, I'm only the, I should say, I'm the son of the real wife. I'm only the son of the concubine. You know, I mean, can you imagine the dynamics that went on in this family? Truly dysfunctional. And this is where the scripture begins. This is where we, uh, we begin. It says, Jacob lived in the land of his father, sojourning, and in the land of Cana. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old. Now, Joseph was the second youngest son, and his mom died giving birth to Joseph's brother, Benjamin. And Joseph was the son of the wife that was loved by the husband, right? The Bible says, uh, Rachel, I loved, Leah, I hated. It's a strong verse there. And he was loved by the husband. And it says here that he was 17. He was a shepherd, pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with, look who he was with, the slave sons, the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, 
his father's wives. And Joseph gave a bad report to the father. Sometimes we make him as a tattletale, but you know, I don't think he was a tattletale as much as he saw himself as above them. Like I'm their supervisor. And dad's my supervisor, and so I'm giving the, I'm just telling you, the guys didn't treat the sheep right. I don't know what they did. I don't know what the bad report was. But Joseph, he sees himself as above them, superior to them. And if you know the story, you also know that the firstborn always got the lion's share, and that would be Reuben. The trouble is, Reuben climbed into the bed of Bilhah, and that wasn't good, and he lost his firstborn rights. So now Joseph is truly the firstborn. And now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. This is a priestly robe. This is a robe with sleeves. This is a a robe that said, this guy is going to get the lion's share. He's my favorite one. Did you grow up in a home with favoritism at all? Anybody? You know, I didn't. but, But many families can relate to this. And he made him this robe. And when his brothers saw that he loved him more than all the brothers, what did they do? They hated to him. And look at this, they could not speak peaceably to him. Idiot, jerk, punk. You know, I mean, they, can you imagine you are the outcast in your family? Now, this favoritism, you'd think that dad would have learned something because dad grew up in a home with favoritism. The Bible says that Jacob, Joseph's dad, had a twin, Esau. One was hairy, one wasn't. And his dad, Jacob's dad, favored Esau, the hairy hunter guy. And the mom favored Jacob. I mean, you'd think that he learned from the chaos and what it felt like to be favored, but haven't you ever noticed that it's easy for the sins of the parents to be passed on to your generation and the next generation and the next generation? Haven't you ever noticed that, how easy it is to, to pick up on mom and dad's faults, you know? We always like their good stuff. Camille will say to me sometimes, oh, that reminds me of your mom. You know, something I've done or said, or that reminds me of your dad. Now, by the grace of God, she hasn't pointed out any sin that reminds her of my dad or mom, but I'm sure they're there and she holds her tongue. You know, it's easy, I think, and even when we fight against, like, I'm not going to be like my parents, it still shapes us, doesn't it? We're still shaped by that. And, and, but he didn't learn anything. And so his favoritism caused chaos in the family. Now, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. I mean, you, the, the little pictures we get of Joseph are hatred, more hatred, and additional hatred, right? He says, hear the dream that I dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaves arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around, bowed down to me. His brothers said to him, Are you in you said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? So they hated him even more for his words. And it, it said, And then he dreamed another dream, and he told his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream, and the sun and the moon and the eleven stars bowed down to me. Who is this really true about? Jesus. But when he told it to his father, his father rebuked him. I mean, dads were to be honored. And somehow when Joseph shared this dream with his dad, his dad was like, dude, son, like you've taken your superiority to a whole nother level. 
What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and brothers indeed come and bow down ourselves to the ground before you? It's like maybe your brothers, but your mom, no, no, we will not be that. I mean, do you see this kind of dynamic going on in the family? It's, it's crazy. He's superior. He's like this. And I think Joseph had a, a thing or two to learn, right? And when I read this, I see the sin is a pandemic, it's affecting everybody in the family. Now the brothers went to pasture and their, father, their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flocks at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to them, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now and see if, the, if it is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. You know what's interesting is if you understand what's going on here, it's a picture of what happened with Jesus, isn't it? You know what the word Hebron means? Fellowship. Joseph is having fellowship with his father. He's the dearly loved son, and he gets sent off to his brothers. One author said, touch the life of Joseph at any point, and instantly this or that aspect of the person or work of Christ will be revealed. I mean, you see him leaving the fellowship of the Father and going to be with his brothers. And what happens if you know the story? Jesus told the parable of a guy who is the son of a vineyard owner, and he goes out to check on the vineyard, and what do they do to him? They kill him. And it's the same picture in the life of Joseph. You know, Joseph's story in Genesis takes up 25% of the book. I mean, that's, that's a chunk of Genesis, isn't it? You know how much the creation of the stars and the universe? One sentence, right? And Joseph gets, gets 25%. And you know why? I think it's because it's a picture of Christ. That Joseph's life is a, is a type or a picture of Christ. And if you know anything about me, I love seeing Jesus all through the Bible. But you know what's kind of fascinating? There's another type of Christ and it's you and me. Look at this. A type is a picture or an image. Look what it says here. We love Romans 8:28 for we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purposes, now here's this. For those he, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? Be conformed to the image of his son. You know what that is? A type of Christ. So on the day of your funeral, wouldn't it be great if somebody stood up and said, I saw Jesus in Billy. I saw Jesus in Betty. Like they were a picture of Jesus to me. Their lives were my, lived like this, my life for yours. Sacrificially, my life for yours. I mean, we look at, at uh, Joseph's life and we're like, oh, look at Jesus is all over this. But have you ever thought about your life? Like when you have your goals in life, is is this in there? To be conformed to the image of Christ? You know, Lord, through my parenting, I hope you change me to be more like Jesus. At my workplace, I hope that you change me to be more like Jesus. With my family, I hope you change me. With my spouse, I hope you change me. With my friends, I hope you change me to be more like Jesus. I am to be a type of Christ. And so are you. It's so easy to have consumer Christianity, right? I mean, church 
is, is so easy to be like, what do I get from it? It's easy when we first come in the doors of Christianity to be like, Lord, I'm broken and I need you, right? Lord, I need fixed, I need helped, I need healed. But as we grow, we become the person in the basket that gets given out. You know, it's so easy to like consume. You can Google this character Joseph in the Bible and you could probably listen to I don't know days worth of sermons online you've got your famous preachers you got your dead preachers right you've, you know I had a friend who worked for a Christian radio station years ago and he said we have more dead preachers on the air than living right because they can keep going through their teaching you and you can listen to all these great things and you can consume so much but God would say what's happening in our hearts are we being transformed into the image like Joseph? So Joseph went after his brothers and he found them. And they saw him from afar before he came near and they conspired to kill him. And they said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Who gave Joseph the dream? God. Who do they really hate? God. Just like us when Jesus was sent into the world and the world rejected him. Come now, they said, let's kill him and throw him into the pit. And then we will say that a fierce animal devoured him. And we will see what will become of his dreams. We'll thwart that guy's plans, loving brothers. But Reuben heard it and rescued him out of their hands, saying, Hey, let's not take his life. Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into the pit here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him that he might rescue him later and restore him to the Father. So Reuben did not have the spine, right? You can see that because of his other misdeeds. And he didn't want to stand up to the brother, but he wanted to sneak him out in a, in a certain way. But when uh, Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and they threw him in a pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. This is a pit, basically, like the water would run and they built a cistern so it would store the water that they could drink it up for later. And it was empty because it was dry. And they sat down to eat and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. You know, if this is, they got their brother like pleading for his life in a pit. And they sit down and they're like, can you pass the hummus? Right? I mean, what, what, what's going on in the callous hearts of the brothers there? They, this guy's just crying out. But they see these, these traders who are uh, trading in gum and balm and myrrh, and they're on their way to Egypt. And Judah says to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let not our hands be upon him, for he's our brother, our own flesh. So somehow there is some compassion here. And, and, and his brothers listen to him. I wanted to get in their shoes for a minute, but by the way, you know how much they sold him for? 20 shekels. What did Judas sell Jesus for? Something, you know? Like Judas sells Jesus. They sell, like there's this selling that goes on. But what is it like to be Joseph for a minute? I mean, growing up, he's a favored son. And he probably had a perspective. Interviewed Joseph, he'd say, you know what? I'm going to take over the family business. 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be righteous. I'm going to do things right. You know, he had an air of superiority. You know, he, he might not have felt as much for, that his brothers were feeling, you know, but he, you would have interviewed him and he knew where his life was going and all of a sudden, bam, COVID hit, right? You know what I mean? All of a sudden, things changed for him and he's trying to figure out life and and this is something beautiful about his life. And if you know the story, and we're going to talk about it in the weeks to come, God honed him through these experiences. God transformed him through these experiences. I mean, he might be confused. He might be perplexed. He might be struggling. What's going on? What am I to do as a slave? I've been a favored son. And God is honing him and using him. You know, in marriage, I talk about relational viruses. And, you know, when you argue um, in, in relationships and you say things like, you always, right? You never. Nobody always or never, right? That's a relational virus. You know, another relational virus is when you escalate. You start it by escalating your voice. Or maybe you're calm, but you say, Remember this, remember that, remember that? And you start bringing in all these other things, right? And those are viruses. That's not a good way to communicate in relationships. Like, stay to one topic. You can discuss the other ones. And, you know, I think we have relational viruses that hit our relationship with Christ. When hard times come and we just have no hope, it's a virus. Because, I mean, look at Jesus on the cross. You could go, that's it. Life is done, but it's not the end of the picture, is it? It's not the end of the story. And so many times I think when difficulty hits, we, we need to take a step back and go, Lord, the cross wasn't the end of the story. This is a bad thing. This is a horrible thing. But it's not the end of the story for me. The viruses can get in there. There's a way of seeing our life that is, that's uh, bigger than what we see now. This gal, Natasha, I think you say her name is Trethway. She was a Pulitzer Prize winner for poetry in 2007. She was a poet laureate in Mississippi in 2012. United States poet laureate, 12 and 14. Lamont poet, I could keep going. And then the Heinz Award in 2017. She was a, a woman who uh, was raised by two parents until her age age of six, and her parents got divorced somewhere down the line. Her mom married another man who was abusive and beat her mom, and her mom finally divorced him when she was age 19, and that man went and killed her mom. And, and she said that that moment when, I, when, when my mom was killed, I both felt that I would become a poet, and then immediately afterwards, I felt I would not. I turned to poetry to make sense of what happened. She said this, uh, my mom's story became intrins intrinsically bound with my vocation as a writer. In a poem, Articulation, she said, how then could I not answer her life with mine? She who saved me with hers. How could I not bathe in the light of her wound and find my calling there? And in the same poem, she contemplates a portrait of St. Gertrude and the sacred heart of Christ. Her deceased mom visits her in a dream, her body whole again, but 
for one perfect wound and a singular articulation of all the wounds at the center of her forehead, the size of a wafer. Light is pouring out of it. Our wholeness as humans depends on the, the rejection of our suffering, but I'm sorry, not on the rejection of our suffering, but rather the embracing the pain and letting that story speak to us. Not define us, but speak to us. Who we are is organically enmeshed in the perfect wounds of Christ. For eternity, he will bear the scars that not only tell the story of redemption, but acknowledge the affliction that shapes us and remain a part of the little stories we write as we navigate our daily experiences. In an interview with PBS, she said, I don't think about that I'd be a writer without that existential wound. She said, one author pointed out that trying to heal the wound that never heals lies the strangeness of an artist's work. That kind of awareness of death that makes something not just beautiful, but meaningful in a different way. I think at 19, I was telling myself that I had an experience that wound and that I would have to make something of it. But as one poet said, that wound is the place where light enters you, and it did. She, what she's saying is, what's in store for Joseph are wounds that will shape him to be the person that God wants him to be. Stuff happens. You can look back at your life, and I, I think I know many of you here, and I, I could tell your story, and I look at your stories, and I'm like, Lord, look what you did in their life. They live with that wound. They live with that injury. They live with that hurt, and yet the beauty and the wisdom and the grace that I know them to be is because of those sufferings and those wounds and that's what was in store for Joseph and that's what we live out as we look like Jesus every day. Well, it says that the Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt, and when Reuben returned to the pit, he's like, what? He saw that Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe, and they slaughtered a goat, and they dipped the robe in blood, and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found, please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it's my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. You know what's interesting? Remember, um, you got Jacob and Esau, the twins. Do you remember how Jacob wanted his brother's blessing? And how when his dad was old and feeble, he took fur and he put it on his arm. Do you remember what animal it was? Goat fur. Jacob deceived his father with goat fur, and now his sons are deceiving him with goat blood. And the, and the son's robe and the fierce animal devoured him, and Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garment and put sackcloth on his loins and 
mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. Can you imagine what it's like being those boys? They thought, well, dad will be sad, but there's 11 of us left, not even to mention the sisters. Come on, dad, get over it. You got us. His dad's like, no, I'll go to my grave. I'll go to my grave mourning Joseph. And his father wept for him. Do you ever ask yourself, what is it like to be those boys? I mean, they somehow had this plan. They hated their brother. They're getting rid of him. And yet, they had, look what it says. Later on in Genesis, they say to one another, surely we're being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life. In their ears is this pleading right? In their ears is their brother crying out, don't do this to me. Save me. Rescue. Like, and, and in their ears, and then they have this deception that they're carrying along with their dad for decades to come. What is it like to carry shame and guilt and regrets through your life, right? I mean, why do people get tattoos that say, no regards, Rag arts, I mean regrets. You know, this is bad spellers of the world. Unite, untie, right? You know, um, yeah, you wonder if that guy regretted that. Uh, but they live with these regrets. But you know what's so beautiful to me? That even though they did evil, God worked that evil for good. I want you to know that the things where you've blown it in your life, the things that you carry with you, the things that if you could get a do-over, you do it in a heartbeat, God says, I got your back. I can even weave this into the tapestry of reality and make it beautiful. And that's what he actually did for Joseph. And I was thinking about that when I thought of something that I read in an article about the late congressman John Lewis. He's got a book here, Across the Bridge, A Vision for a Chance for the Future of America. And he said this, these are his words, diffusing the fury of violence by obstructing and redirecting the attention of attackers uh, is in itself an act of love. So, so he, when, when he would protest in the 60s, he said, my diffusing the violence was an act of love. Having compassion for your attacker means harboring no malice. See, seek no retribution for the wrong that has been done. He said, it's an offering of love that asserts the victim's self-worth. It makes room for the inner working of his or her soul that has a way of invoking a quiet insistence to do what is right. He says, this brings to mind the one and only attacker of the 40 times I was arrested and jailed who apologized to me for his actions. Almost 48 years after that now, freedom, now famous Freedom Ride stop in Rock Hill, South Carolina, that left Albert Bigelow and me so badly bruised and bloodied. Elwin Wilson, one of the attackers, wanted to come and meet me. 
Wilson had apologized to the Freedom Riders during a ceremony honoring them in South Carolina and had mentioned his wish to find the men that he actually beat up that day. He said, I welcomed him to Washington and we sat and Wilson looked deep into my eyes, searching my expression. And he said, he was the person who had beaten me in Rock Hill in May of 1961. And he said, I'm sorry about what I did that day. Will you forgive me? Without a moment's hesitation, I looked back at him and said, I accept your apology. The man who had physically and verbally assaulted me was now seeking my approval. This was a great testament to the power of love to overcome hatred. Later on, he writes, because we met that man in love and offered him, despite his obvious hatred, nothing to justify his anger. He left that day when he beat me only to review it in his mind over and over again for many years, just like Joseph's brother. The resonance of our innocence made room in his soul for the real, realization that he needed to ask forgiveness. I was surprised to hear him so clearly restate 48 years later the essence of what I said to the police as I declined to press charges almost a half century earlier. We're not here to cause trouble. We're here so that people love each other. Can you imagine over and over in that guy's mind for 40 some years he hears the people he beat up and bloodied we're not here to cause trouble we're here so that people love each other what an impact will you pray with me lord we look at joseph and his brothers and we know you're at work behind the scenes in ways and we look at our lives now and we think of things we've been through and and we think of the perplexities of the future but we can hold your hand. You're active in our lives. You're shaping us through our circumstances, through your word, through each other, Lord, to look more like you. Lord, I pray that all of our lives would be pictures of you. When we look from our perspective, we think, how could it be? But nothing is too difficult for you. Hold out that faith that God is shaping as a potter holds clay in his hand, he's shaping your life into his image. Lord, work in our hearts more and more. And we'll say thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Community of Hope, go to www.cohchurch.com. God bless you today.